Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And today we have a fantastic interview with Dr. Garrison Bliss. Now, Dr. Bliss is a physician. He was trained um, got, or got his medical degree at the University of Utah, then left for Seattle where he did his residency training there, uh, where he spent most of his time in primary care. Now, Dr. Bliss has an amazing story, uh, which I'm going to let him tell the details of because it's so fascinating. But just to start off here, he became quite frustrated with the way that medical practice has consumed our nation very, very early on. So we've been talking about this here on Straight Shot Health Talk for a couple years now. Uh, Dr. Bliss got frustrated with this in the 90s. And really, instead of just complaining, which was what we tend to do in medicine quite a bit, he actually took aggressive action and made a significant change. Uh, And that started with 1997. And we will kind of touch on that from here. Dr. Bliss, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do it. All right, so I kind of touched on on some of your experiences here, but could you provide a little bit of the background of where you started with medicine? Well, and it, it, that's a very long story, <laughs> but I, I, I think what I could talk about is a little bit is why I got interested in the question of how you do better healthcare, um, and that goes that goes back quite a ways. That's over thirty years ago when my son had his brain tumor and was in the hospital. Uh, here in Seattle, and um, and I was already a practicing internist, and I had a pretty good practice at that point, um, and I was pretty happy with my training and what I knew and how we took care of people, and just kind of being at a bedside um, and being a regular person with a lot of medical training um, made it very difficult for me um, to understand how the healthcare system actually worked. Um, I was, you know, I was seeing things that 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 struck me struck me as strange. For instance, um, we, for the parents of a three-year-old kid with a brain tumor, there were rules, and the, the one of the rules was that you couldn't be there all night. You couldn't spend the night in the room because it interfered with processes that were going on in the hospital. And um, you couldn't you could stay in the hospital, but if you wanted to, you had to go to this big room and pull a mattress off the stack and sleep on it. And then sometime in the morning, you would be permitted to go back to the bedside and see your children. So um, it was it, it, there were many things like that. There were no toys in the toy boxes at a children's hospital. And I thought, that's the weirdest thing in the world. And it, I began to wonder why. And I began to see this stuff in my own environment where I was taking care of adults in another hospital across town. And I began to realize that, that the only theory that you could come up with was that we were not working for the right people, that somehow we had gotten off course. Uh, healthcare was taking care of itself, mm-hmm. taking care of its income, um, taking care of our own intellectual interests about, uh, about healthcare, but we weren't really focusing on what patients needed and wanted the way McDonald's does, right? So, you know, in America, we're pretty used to service and understanding the concepts of service, but in healthcare, Mm -hmm. 
going to be, be treated as if you are a problem when you call up and want to be taken care of today because you're sick today. That, you know, we're busy here. We've got a lot of things to do. Our doctors don't have any time to work you in today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, find me any kind of consumer-driven um, uh, business in America that's going to treat their customers like that. No, I, I completely agree. Just We had a quick little break there. We just missed the, the top of what you were saying. Um, but I think that the overall impression was 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 definitely that we don't provide service. And, and uh, you know, I, I find that really interesting in healthcare overall is the fact that, um, you know, just like, just like you were saying, is if this was any other industry, you know, not only would we be bankrupt because we would not be having people come to our doors, um, but no one would ever tolerate what we have in this in this whole whole entire system. So it's it's and but doctors, I think, is interesting because I've heard that multiple stories from other physicians that you kind of get into the system. But it's not until you actually have the experiences of a patient or of, of taking somebody through that system that really the the paradigm seems to change. Well, it's the di it's the difference between between pro progress and um, transformation. So. The people, the people who were fighting on the front lines of this particular battle are people who had a very personal reason to be doing it, and I certainly did. Um, I mean, I could, just, I could see that there was a problem. There was a problem in my own office. It wasn't just somebody else's problem. It wasn't the insurance companies made it happen. Um, but I, what, I, what, I, what I wanted to do was to see whether there's a way to do it better. And so that was that's the struggle, and I've been at that for a very long time. Um, the the next kind of uh, the next kind of turning point was was when two of my partners at Seattle Medical decided to go start their own practice, and they started a company that's that's called MD Squared, and that company was a monthly fee practice, the first concierge practice in the United States, at a thousand dollars per person per month for primary care. That was that was that was their transition into something new and different. Yeah, and <laughs> that that brings up a big point here because I don't think uh, that a lot of people understand what direct primary care is. And so there is there is a mistaken sort of belief because people have heard about concierge care. I remember when, when that first started getting started and there was a hue and cry. Some people were saying this was the worst thing in the world. Other people said it was the best thing in the world. Um, but what is the so what is what is concierge care, and how does that contrast with direct primary care? Well, I mean, the best way to look at the differentiation is 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 to ask the question: what what what's different in terms of what they're supposed to accomplish? So, the the first like the first the first automobile was expensive. Um, and and there was a reason why it was expensive. It's because r wealthier people were more likely to want to buy it, um, and they would have the funds to do it. Poorer people could not afford the technology at the time. Um, and uh, in 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 this particular arena, the first model was expensive. But the objective was not to create a healthcare system for everyone. The objective was to create a healthcare system for wealthy people which would give them all the bells and whistles that they want, all the service that they want, um, and all the access that they want. Um, and they don't care how much they pay for it because no, you couldn't buy it anywhere. 
Mm-hmm. This, this, you know, it's like it's like buying the first automobile. It's a big deal, and so they're willing to pay for it. And the question is, who is going to develop the Model T? Mm-hmm. And and I wasn't interested in taking care of fifty f- extremely rich families. That was not on my agenda. It wasn't why I went into medicine. It didn't feel right to me. And I also didn't think that it would be possible to grow a very big um, organization like that. And my my objective at that point was to start the process of creating really high quality uh, primary care that could move across the United States. But I had no idea how to do it or even what I meant by that. Um, and and uh, so they left to do that. And I thought about this because I was quite clear long before health, that primary care itself was at risk. That there were certain things about the way the healthcare reimbursement system works that were actually going to kill us. We were going to be the Goonie Birds. Um, and just because, you know, if you're, if, you, if you're doing bone marrow transplant, there's a ton of money that's flowing through you and you can afford all of the expenses of getting paid. You can hire all the people, you can do all the fancy billing, you can train people to do all the coding, um, and you're going to get paid handsomely for your efforts. Um, but in primary care, we were the lowest paid by far. Primary care has been substantially undervalued. It's probably at about 30% of reimbursement of, of, of the specialties. Um, and, and we also have you know a fixed cost of business. So just operating our clinic, we have to pay the rent, we have to pay our employees, we have to pay ourselves, and that's about it. So we don't have a lot of expensive stuff that we have to deal with. But when you added all that up and what insurance companies were willing to pay, you had to see about 20 to 30 people a day to make the, make a living at it. And I already knew that I wasn't going to see 20 or 30 people a day because that really didn't make any sense for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I wasn't interested in the business model, I was interested in the care. <laughs> so, so what I tried to do was to stand that thing on its head. Ask the question, what do I really mean by good care? How would that look? How many, how many patient visits would I do a day? How much time would I spend per patient? Um, would I be doing physical exams on everybody every year or not? Um, how, so how much capacity would I have in my practice? How many people could I actually take care of and do good work? And at that point, I had a lot of experience. You know, I had 20 years of experience in healthcare. And so I really could do that math. And I also knew very well what it cost to run a clinic. Mm-hmm. So if you know how many patients you, got, you, you could take care of at most, and you know what it'll cost you to run your practice, and you divide the, the, the cost by the number of people, you can tell what it's going to be per person per month. <laughs> So I did that math, and the math led me to an average cost of probably thing on the order of fifty dollars per, per, per member per month per person per month. Okay. So you didn't need a thousand dollars, and it didn't have to be terribly expensive. Primary care doesn't require all of that, and, but it does require enough enough cash flow so that we don't have to be thinking about money all day long, mm-hmm. and it also. It also means that once you once you have established that cash flow and you're not hungry and nervous and worried about whether you're going to be able to stay open, you could start to focus on something else so that healthcare could actually start to be about patients, what they want and need, 
and making them healthier. Mm-hmm. Because we had also inadvertently discovered a business model for healthcare, a monthly fee, that with the right monthly fee um, changed everything. We didn't have to do x-rays on everybody with a cough, which we could justify, but we honestly didn't need to do. We didn't have to do laboratory on everybody uh, when we already knew what we were going to do, and they didn't, they didn't care and we didn't care. We were going to treat it or we weren't already. So you could make decisions much more simply. You could, you could have only one customer you had to worry about, which was the patient. Um, you didn't have this other looming customer, which was whoever you were coding for. Um, all of that creative work that we've done I mean, you can see that everywhere in healthcare now. If you get, if you, if you're a doctor in practice and you get a, an an emergency room visit note, it's a minimum of eight pages long for something that I could write up in a paragraph, right? And there's a reason for that. The reason is that you have to justify all the billing you're doing, and you're doing a bucket of billing. Um, you're turning a a a fifty dollar visit into a five thousand dollar visit. And you're you're being, and of course you're saying that you're being thorough, but that's not thorough. That's gouging, <laughs> and we haven't called it what it is for a long time. So so that kind of stuff is sort of what's driving healthcare right now. So I really wanted to see if we could move around that, and this monthly fee thing seemed to do it. Yeah, so that brings up two two questions here. The first one um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw out just so I remember, and that has to do with the idea of cost and insurance. Okay, and I'm gonna come back to that. The other one that I, I wanted to touch on too is with this with this this time to spend with patients. One of the arguments I've had is that you basically get paid to do things, give somebody someone, or educate them. And one of the problems that we have in healthcare is that we don't have time to actually discuss things with patients anymore in a way that makes sense, that they can understand, that is that is communicative. Uh, and so what we do is we get lazy, and not only are we padding our practices, is that we're ordering tests or giving out drugs because it's faster to do than it is to talk to a patient. And did did. Did you find that in anywhere in the equation here, or um, did you find any change with that, I guess? Well, it's, it's one of the things I have in, in common with President Obama. We both are looking for exit strategies at one point or another. <laughs> and, and for doctors, every visit is built around an exit strategy. Because when you have very limited time, and you know, you know that, you, that somebody has just dropped they just said something they've alluded to you know feeling like life isn't worth living and you don't know if they're just you know being a a a little bit uh, excessive in their speech or if they're thinking about killing themselves and you have to decide am I going to stop this right now and spend 25 minutes and get to the bottom of that question or am I not going to do that Mm -hmm. when you have three minutes you don't even want to hear it because if, if you give them half an hour, that means you are, you know, five patients behind. You're in deep water, and most of the time they don't really mean it. But when you leave that room, you have a pretty awful feeling in the pit of your stomach that you, you have just broken one of the key rules of healthcare. And so every one of these visits is so time limited is a problem. So that's why I said 
if you're going to have a great practice, it had better have time in it. Mm-hmm. It had better have too much time in it. So the concept of excess capacity in a medical practice became part of what I began to think about. Forget efficient. Mm-hmm. Exclude it from your concept list. What you're interested in is enough time to do good work. And if it turns out it's easier than that, then you have a little bit of time to do something else, like make those phone calls you were going to make to all of those people who were calling this morning that were never scheduled in anybody's schedule uh, you know, as things currently stand. They have some, you know, some time at the end of the day that they're supposed to do that. But why not have more capacity than you need? Why not spend more time with patients than you have to? So we started with a 30-minute base. That's the bottom. That's as low as it goes. Um, we now have phone visits that we do, and those, some of those are 15 minutes because they clearly can be time-limited like that. But for most of the thing, for anything we do in the office, it's 30 minutes. And the maximum for me is about two hours because that's what it takes for me to, to actually get to the bottom of things with some, with some people who are very complicated. And I want to spend that time. And if it, doesn't, if it works out that, it, that I don't need it all, then I can I I found that I f- I can find something to do with, with my time. So so th- this is part of what you start to think about when you when the money is not an issue anymore mm-hmm. is what services should we provide? You know, what can we create around this? So we started by doing things like giving people our cell phone numbers and our email addresses. Um we began to to say, well, you know, what services would they like? So in my first iteration of this at, at CL Medical, we just decided everything we used to charge for, we were going to give them for free. We weren't going to charge for x-rays. We weren't going to charge for electrocardiograms or spirometries, our CBCs, our urinalyses, strep tests, whatever, the things that we used to charge for because that's how you make money in primary care is you do a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. So we said we're going, to, we're going to stop worrying about that because it's actually, it's actually a distraction. We'll do them if we need to do them because they don't cost us very much to do. But what we're not going to do is build our future around overutilizing stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and in addition, we have time to tell people, you know, you probably you don't need to see a specialist. You don't need the MRI scan. You don't need any lab work today. Let's try this out and come back and talk to me or call me on my cell phone in three days if it's not working. And we'll do something else. So you didn't need to have that huge, you didn't need to have the, write the prescription, send them to a specialist thing to get them out of your office. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm just applauding you here. When I, when I hear that, particularly coming from a, from a specialist field, when you look at, uh, I'm working on some projects with back pain right now, and when you, when you look at what we've done, and we order more MRIs, and, and people don't consider the impact that those MRIs are having. Not only they're expensive to do, but they generate all sorts of costs and worse outcomes for patients downstream. Uh, I mean, it just, just blows my mind. But this brings up that cost issue, though, with, with insurance. So, you know, if, you're, if you are healthy or even if you are, are you know, I'm going to say you have high blood pressure, maybe you have some moderate diabetes and things like that, I could see where this would work really well because we're, you're working on your visits, you're addressing the problems of effectively, you're giving them the strategies they need to actually get healthy and well. But there are bad things that happen. So just like in a, if you have a car accident or you may have a heart attack or maybe you have cancer or, or some sort of traumatic, awful thing occurs, um, how did your patients, how did, you, how did you mesh that in so that it was affordable for them 
um, or at least that they weren't completely bankrupt when the time was all? Well, that's a great question and, and, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons is that whenever people listen to me describe my primary care practice, they often come to the question of, well, but what are you going to do to take care of everybody else's problems, everything else they need? Um, you know, it's like I run a gas station, but what, what are you going to do if they get in a car wreck? Mm-hmm. No, I run a gas station, right? <laughs> so so I, I'm, I'm, we're, I'm not – the thing that, that, that I'm interested in is primary care. Our monthly fee is for primary care. We need insurance companies. We need them for, for, for expensive, infrequent – um, potentially financially devastating events so that people won't go broke courtesy of the healthcare system. We do need all of that. We need specialists. We need hospitals. And they need to, they need to be paid reasonably for what they do. But what we're carving out is something that is dead simple, should be inexpensive, should be readily available to everybody, and there should be no ambiguity about whether you can get access to it which is primary care. So, so the, idea, the idea of applying an insurance model to what we do is crazy. And you've, heard, you've probably already heard the analogies, but it's like, it's like uh, having uh, auto insurance that buys your car mm-hmm. and pays for your gas and your oil and your wiper blades and, and your service. Of, it, you know, it, 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 doesn't, it makes very little sense to have insurance do that. And insurance companies agree with us now um, and we're trying to build new new sort of structures with the insurance industry to allow us to work with them in a way that would really preserve um, the not only the, not only healthcare itself, but also um, allow them to get back in the insurance business, which they would love to do. Um, so where they really are attending to risk and and helping people avoid financial catastrophe. Um, and, and able to focus their guns on that, not the 90% of healthcare that's happening in our little neighborhood where everything costs almost nothing. And all we're interested in is doing is having the almost nothing turn into enough money so that we could actually do this well. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, a, that's, that's a great point. And I, I would just, from a technical standpoint, though, because I, I want to make sure that we leave the listeners with something about this, is if you are finding um, or if you're interested in a direct primary care model, then uh, do you then recommend that they have like a high deductible, like catastrophic care insurance or, or something like that as well? Or do you have a lot of people that are just doing this and then kind of hoping that they don't have catastrophe occurring? Well, you know, we now live in a country which mandates health insurance mm-hmm. um, of one sort or another. Um, so it used to be that we would set aside 10 or 15% of our practice for people who simply couldn't afford $50 a month or $60 a month or $70 a month. Um, and um, now it's, you know, the, the government has told people you got to get an insurance, even if it's Medicaid. Mm-hmm. So, so um, we're, we're very much in favor of that happening. Um, you, can, you can match, if, you, if you're paying for this out of your pocket, then uh, for, for your monthly fee to a direct primary care practice out of your pocket, then right now you can't get your insurance company to help you with that. But that's not going to be true for much longer. So we're already involved with Medicaid, for instance. So we work with a Medicaid managed care company in the state of Washington. They pay the monthly fee, and Medicaid patients are getting concierge care. <laughs> 
with with uh, same or next day access to urgent for urgent care at six cl- of our clinics, the Q Alliance clinics in Seattle, um, uh, where where we are managing chronic pain. We are we are helping people who are working with oncologists because they have cancer, but they also have lots of primary care needs um, and also social issues. Um, we work with we have we now have a a, a clinic that's working that that has on-site behavioral health um, because we have a lot of patients who need that so so our partner our medicaid partners has co-located us or we've co we've found the connections to do that so that we can start to take care of that population of people better so our monthly fee covers the primary care and then if they need other care then their insurance company wants to get involved with that but get us together so we're not wasting money and time. Um, and, and that's a great solution to that problem, um, which is common to many Medicaid situations across the country. We're also working in the exchanges with, a, with an insurance partner um, in which the, the monthly fee is paid by the insurance again. And, um, and so that allows, us, um, that allows us to take care of not only the most poor, the people who are the poorest in the country, but it also the next echelon up, which is the people who are working, who are getting their insurance in the exchanges. Um, so, so we're now able to demonstrate a whole spectrum that we can work. We, we're, we, in terms of working out a wraparound insurance policy, I think we're very close to that, where your insurance just buys everything but primary care, and you buy your primary care yourself. So you don't have to buy it twice, essentially, to do this. Um, that's all happening, and we're also there. Also, is an experiment going on now in the state of Washington, and also in Arizona, uh, with another direct primary care company called Iora, and they're working with Medicare Advantage, with the same arrangement, where the Medicare Advantage plan is actually providing the monthly fee support, and so that Medicare patients can get this same access to, to highly accessible care, lot, ample time to do it right motivated uh, docs, but also they have health coaches. We all have nurses and nurse practitioners. Um, there, there are all kinds of other healthcare people who are involved in this effort now. Yeah, and so here's, here's, here's something I'm kind of uh, very interested in is we always hear about this story about, you know, there's not enough doctors, there's not enough access, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so if we are limiting, we have time limited or we have less appointments or less time, how do I say this? There's less patients per day being seen. Is there a way, you know, what's the, how is that being absorbed? If we, if we all of a sudden switch to a direct primary, and I'm not, I, I love direct primary care. I think it's fantastic, but I'm just going to play a little devil's advocate here. If this was sweeping and the entire nation went to it, how would that, uh, where's the, uh, the resiliency in the system or the ability to absorb that kind of patient population? Well, I, I don't actually, that's not terribly complicated, but the best, the best way to talk about this is to say, how come there's a shortage? How does that happen? Right? We're, we're paying a gazillion dollars for our healthcare, right? And, um, our, you know, our institutions of higher learning have the capability of training enough primary care physicians to glut the market. Well, how come not? Why does 90% of the people going into healthcare right now express no interest in primary care? It's pretty obvious. It's a rotten job. 
so so you you were you are going to you are going to see twenty to thirty people a day. You're going to work sixty hour work weeks, and you're going to be paid a third of what everybody else is getting paid in the healthcare marketplace. Um, and you're not going to actually be able to practice the kind of medicine you wanted to practice when you were trained. So can you name a worse situation? I mean, it's surprising that even that many people want to do it. So if we wanted to change that, what we would do is create a way of doing primary care that was enormously attractive to people in medical school. And it's not intrinsically it is. It used to be 50% of graduating classes. And now it's 10. So it, what if it were 50%? Again, how long would it take to make up for that shortfall in primary care? Also, primary care isn't rocket science. It doesn't, it's not that you have to have a million years of training to do it. Um, you have to be good at it. And, in, in di and real primary care, which means that you're really spanning all of the specialties. And you're doing all of the ground, the foundational work that many of those, you know, you may refer people on, but you're going to take care of, you know, 80% of, of people with psychiatric problems and you're going to treat them yourself. You're going to do mo lots of GYN things, but you can do a pap smear. You don't, you don't need to have a highly, highly trained specialist to do that. So, so um, it's, it's a complex field, really, but um, it's quite capable of doing a, a big chunk of the healthcare in the United States. So I, I, don't, I don't think that we're going to have a lot of trouble um, uh, fixing that problem with primary care supply if we create a kind of primary care that people will want to do. And that, I think we did it. It's done. It's created. You know, my, I was the first guy to do this, uh, you know, uh, my, I and my partner, but there are thousands of people doing this already. Um, there are multiple companies that are trying to scale this right now. Um, there is interest coming from all sectors, including government. You know, we, we are just starting a direct primary care bill. We, uh, we had a, we had a, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. last week to help create a bill that will get rid of the final roadblocks to doing this, that will allow patients to, use, to, to write off their monthly fee as a medical deduction, for instance, right? <laughs> These sound like small points, but it's a big deal to people who don't have a lot of money. I mean, to rich people, not a problem. That's why they bought early. But right now, we really want this to be something that normal people will be able to do because it's life-saving for them. No, I, I say absolutely, and there's so many good points there. You know, the fact that, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, 49% of healthcare is being delivered by specialists. You know, um, I, I, you know, 80% plus of what is out there could and should be managed by a primary care doctor. The fact that a lot of times I do a little consulting on with pain and what I find is that often it's just a question. And if they, once a, you know, once the doctor knows the answer or, or at least a suggested solution, and if they actually had time to manage it, they could do it in a much better job than the specialist could. And it's, it's yeah, the resources are just unbelievable. So I, I, I love that part. And I also I definitely agree with you when you say if you actually make it a, a job that's in demand where people can actually do and practice medicine. Because I've heard that from multiple doctors as well. A lot of them had an interest with primary care when they went into medical school. They wanted to you know make a difference in patients' lives. And what they found was when they got in a traditional, direct, or traditional primary care role, they weren't taking care of anybody anymore. They were doing not only seeing the 20 to 30 patients a day, 
doing all the phone calls, doing all the insurance forms and other garbage that they were, you know, they're being little secretaries in there. But then, and this drives me crazy, is when I see the, the specialist would say, well, I'll do whatever my high-priced procedure is, but you go back to your primary care doc so they can fill out your disability forms or, or write your drugs or whatever the case may be. I'm like, absolutely. Why would anybody want to do that? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I agree with you completely. It's, it's, um, th- there is a way to restructure healthcare that would actually work for Americans. Um, not, I mean, it would be uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of us to change our ways, to alter how we operate, and um, to stop looking out for our own bottom lines and start looking out more and more for the needs of this country and the people we take care of. Um, and, but no one's going to go broke doing this. I mean, you know, I, I, there probably won't be specialists earning a million dollars a year. There probably should never have been. <laughs> You know, there we 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 got sidetracked. It's and you know, maybe someday there may even be pharmaceutical companies that will charge less than a hundred thousand dollars to treat your hepatitis C. <laughs> um, it's you know, there, so we may develop some kind of of you know emotional connection to the to the people we care for that won't allow us to do stuff like this. Um, but right now, it's it's sort of the it's the it's the way it's done, and it's it's allowed. Um, as a matter of fact, it's encouraged. We have, we have many many very important uh, companies and country. Well, actually, our, the United States itself has been the ringleader. You know, Medicare and Medicaid have been the ringleaders in overpaying for healthcare, mm-hmm. and and also in stupidly paying for healthcare. That is. Not not recognizing what's valuable and what isn't valuable. They just know what co- how much it costs to make a drug or how much it costs to make a um, you know a, a knee arthrosis. Um, but and then they're using they're con- they're figuring out what things are worth based upon what they cost to make, which is not how things are valued in real marketplaces. So in real marketplaces, when there's two things that do that, that both work and one of them costs a dime. And the other one costs a thousand dollars. They both get a dime. <laughs> that's what they make. That's what they get. That's what they get. They get twelve cents. So the guy who's charging the dime won't go broke. So, so we haven't. We have Those are hard decisions to make, and um, it's much easier to not make them, mm-hmm. particularly when you're a country that has unlimited money. Except we've now discovered that it's not unlimited. <laughs> No, it isn't. It isn't. And, uh, you know, we've, we've kicked, the, kicked the can down so far down the line here that the day of reckoning, I think, is definitely at hand. But, but I, I think what's exciting about your model is the fact that people are – I just read a physician com- – actually, it was a physician article that was written on a, on a blog somewhere. And this physician said, you know, costs um, – if, if you try to drive down costs, you're going to ruin care. And, you, and this person was obviously – they were a specialist – and, um, you know, there's name one example where it, paying more money gives you worse outcomes. I'm like, are, are you, you're a doctor, right? <laughs> All you have to do is look at half the stuff that we're doing. You know, the multiple surgeries, multiple injections, multiple drugs that have poor to no value. Um, now it just I think there's, there, there's a change of perspective. And also it's got to come from physicians on that, too. Um, I do want to could you kind of talk about a little about Q-Lions? So. 
you started your first direct primary care clinic in 1997, and then that uh, you you started Q or that morphed into Q in 2007. Well, no, it didn't morph. Seattle Medical still exists. Okay. Got a great staff, good docs, great docs, and and um, they're still going. They're still doing what they always did. They're they're they have a monthly fee and they take care of individuals and they they have, they have a slightly more upscale group than I'm taking care of. You know, we have we have uh, we we have uh, uninsured, unemployed people sitting next to next to venture capitalists in our off in our waiting room, um, and uh, but. But that still exists. In 2007, um, my, I moved my practice over to Qlience because we found an investor who was willing to come along. He saw the future, saw the future, and thought it involved us. And and um, and and we and uh, that that it became this new model. So what was the difference? Well, one of the differences was that we decided to start being open seven days a week. We started to be. We decided to be open 12 hours a day, Monday through Friday, so that we could take care of working people without having them miss work, and the weekend, so that anybody could come and see us for urgent care um, and avoid an emergency room visit. And we also started to collect data about what that might accomplish if we became, developed more service than any, you know, than concierge practices really can have. More office hours, more availability, more access. Um, and, and the answer to that is um, the cost of health care drops like a rock. <laughs> so, so, I mean, our numbers are sort of in the 20 to 40% reductions in the cost of health care. Oh, wow. That happens because primary care is actually functioning and hyper-functioning. Um, and um, we, we published our, our recent data, which had to do with our experience with, with self-insured employers, which is a great way to go because they know everything that's been spent on healthcare for their company because mm-hmm. it's their money. And they track, the, they track it all, and we've, we uh, have worked with a couple of very large em- employers and a number of smaller ones um, that can help us with these numbers. And that's when we really discovered that this is, this is pretty awesome stuff. We'd been able to con- to come up with numbers before, but they were based upon what was reported to us as opposed to what's actually going on in the whole healthcare system. And when you look at re- cost reductions of the of 20% or more, and you start you start uh, and you consider what 20% of the entire spend in healthcare looks like in the United States, as Everett Dirksen once said, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. Well, this is this is this is the promise of, of real primary care. Uh, is it's it's in the hundreds of billions, uh, maybe close to a trillion. I think was the the expenditure for 2013 was there three or four billion or three or four trillion dollars? I think those estimated. Yeah, we're, I think we're in the we're uh, we're 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 right around four trillion. So so if if, it, if it's four dollars. trillion, we're only talking about we're under a little under a trillion um, <laughs> in reduced expenses and also. In markedly increased patient satisfaction. So, so Qlience does track that. We've tracked it since day one that we opened. So we're talking about patient satisfaction numbers in the um, 98, 99 percent range. Um, that that pretty much outperforms pretty much everybody in, in business. In, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure you're doing this too, but are you also? Tr- uh, Tracking outcomes like days in hospital, mortality, morbidity, et cetera. 
Now, and the only reason I'm asking it because there was that study that came out in New England Journal of Medicine a couple years ago that in a traditional healthcare model, the higher patient satisfaction scores were, were associated with increased costs, worse patient outcomes, including death, than um, those who were least satisfied. So I, I actually did an episode on that. So I said, in general healthcare, you do not want to be highly satisfied because it, it seems to be an indicator of getting way too much of what you don't need and at risk of death. Right. So, but in our case, it's not that, yeah. obviously, because you're getting a lot less of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the reductions in ER use are, 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 are often in the, in the 10 to 40% range. Um, hospital days, likewise, 40% reductions in hospital days, not unusual for us. 50% um, reductions in need of, need of, of specialists, of um, MRI scanners, CT scanners, PET scanners. Um, the, the numbers that have been a little harder for us to come by are in terms of laboratory utilization, but I'm sure it's dramatically less. Um, all of this stuff has to do with, not, with, with cutting away stuff that never needed to happen. In fact, the only reason it happened was because of the way we paid for healthcare. That was it. And, and the only thing we did at QLiance initially, we don't have any. We didn't have a plan. We don't have processes in place to reduce the utilization of the emergency room. All we do is we stop paying our people to produce ER visits. So we're not a hospital that owns a primary care practice mm -hmm. and wants them to refer to the ER. They don't want them open on Saturday and Sunday. That's just an additional cost when they could get $5,000 for every one of their office visits on the weekend. Why would they turn that down? Mm -hmm. So, and the same thing's true about multi-specialty clinics who are buying up all primary care across the United States. Um, that they need referral sources to keep their specialists well-fed. In fact, they're willing to lose 60, 70, 80, $100,000 per primary care practice per year to generate those referrals. And that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And they're still having their these. They're still having their doxy twenty to thirty people a day. Yep, got to feed the feed the beast in a lot of ways. But I I want to also touch on Q Alliance too because, um, or a little bit more. So I think we haven't we've kind of wiggled around it, and I think it's because we've talked before. Uh, but I want the li the listeners to realize, you know, when you look at direct primary care, this is not the small concierge practice in a lot of ways. It can be. But QLiance is a major health provider in the Seattle area. What, you have 40, 35, 40,000 patients that you're taking care of? Or, uh, I mean, how, how big are you now? And how, how have you actually scaled this model and, and really demonstrated that you can take care of large amounts of people effectively? Now, obviously, it's not just you doing it. You have a number of docs. But in a system that's doing it in such a way that you're having such great results. Yeah, I think we're around 35,000 patients at this point. I mean, it varies from month to month. Being, a, being affiliated with a Medicaid carrier is, means that you have a lot of, 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 of ebb and flow in terms of the patient numbers. Um, and the same is true within the exchanges. Um, so, so it's hard to give you a hard number. But, uh, but you know, if we go back to January of last year, we had 8,500 patients. Oh, wow. So, so that, that's a significant growth. Um, and and um, and it, it uh, and also fairly big stress for us when it happened, but and in fact our patient satisfaction numbers dropped down to about ninety six percent, and we were really we were unhappy. I got to tell you to see that happen, um, and it's they're back up now. We've 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 hired we've more than doubled our staff and our docs, and and, and things have things have, are now much more solid. 
but um, it, it was a little scary. But the patients love what we do, and they love it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. They don't love it because uh, we're willing to 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 uh, sell them a, a brand new knee, um, and they don't have to pay for it. That's not why they love it. They still have to figure out how to pay for the brand new knee, or they have insurance to cover that. Um, but what they what they like is that when they're sick, we can see them, and when they're well, we can help them stay that way. And that that's what we're really built for. We're built for their experience, not for our experience, which which goes kind of back to where we started. So that was that's kind of what the driver was for me at the beginning was to see if we could create a space in which great healthcare could happen, um, and happen relatively automatically. We wouldn't have to make it happen. We if we would pay doctors for the right stuff. So in the healthcare system right now, we're buying diagnoses and treatments. That's that's what the government buys. That's what the insurance companies buy, and we produce grundles of that for them. It's there is an outrageous amount of diagnosis and treatment sales going on, um, and and what we've forgotten is that that's not the key to getting people healthy. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the performance of healthcare systems in terms of producing healthy people, it's horrible. And it's horrible everywhere. It's not just here, but it's really horrible here. The, the amount of the dollars for not getting well, patient, are you know twice the twice more than twice the average for the industrial world. Mm-hmm. And we have our patients are measurably the the, the least well off of the top eleven mm-hmm. in terms of their health, and in terms of their health care. So I mean, the, and there's there's some the the Commonwealth Fund looks at this every year, and they keep coming up with the same the same information. It's 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 bad, but it's expensive. <laughs> and and you know, and we think it's the best healthcare in the world just because we're egomaniacal Americans. But if you look very hard at it, it's not performing very well. And those of us who are who are in healthcare are not happy about it, and not proud of it, and we'd like something we could be proud of for a change. Uh, and I. I absolutely agree, and I think that's a fantastic place to stop here because I want to be respectful of your time, and we're already at 45 minutes. I could probably talk to you for about another two or three hours here. Um, thank you thank you so much. So just as we wrap up here, what's a way that people can read a little bit more about QLiance or this healthcare model that you have really innovated and transformed? Well, there's a couple of places. Um, if you want to know about QLiance, we have a website. Q-L-I-A-N-C-E, QAlliance.com. And, um, and it, you can find out the nuts and bolts of, you know, this, we are totally transparent. You can find out what services you could buy and what it would cost you to buy them. Um, there's, there's another organization, if you want to know about the history, about what we're doing legislatively now, because that we've now passed nine, in, we've passed bills in nine states to um, clear the way for direct primary care so people don't confuse it with insurance. Um, and um, we've got probably 10 more on the, um, that, that are ready to go. Um, we have, we, uh, there's a site called dpcare, dpcare.org, the Direct Primary Care Coalition, which, I'm the, which I am the current chairman of the board of. Um, and it has an astounding amount of information about what's going on legislatively and in terms of policy. Um, about this movement, not just it's not just about QLiance, it's about the whole movement, which is very substantial. The American Academy of Family Physicians has really gotten on board in just the last few months, um, and they're putting on courses all across the United States 
you can read about it there. And there's also a, an organization called the, uh, the American Association of Private Physicians, which is about both concierge and direct practice designs. Um, and they help teach people how to do this. Um, and uh, that's just a, that's a smattering of what's out there. But there's a tremendous amount of information uh, for people who are interested in this. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, if if we had a direct primary care clinic in my town, I, I've already told people my family would be enrolled in one. Uh, this was quite the honor to have you talking with us today. And uh, any any final words here for for the listeners? Well, I, I, the only thing I can say is that that, that th there's hope and. Um, <laughs> For, for those who, have, who are unhappy about either the cost of health care or about its inability to take care of their personal needs while they're getting the care, um, the forces are getting realigned, and I think that's good news for everybody. Um, and and I, 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 you know, I, I think that a lot, there are a lot of well-meaning docs, and a lot of people come out of their training well-meaning, and they hate what this health care system is doing to them. Um, they are, they are all, we're all looking for a solution and innovation right now, this may be the most innovative time in the history of healthcare right now. Um, Dave Chase, um, whom you may know as a, a guy who has a sort of a national presence, writes for Forbes and other, uh, organ and other, um, uh, uh, publications. Um, he just wrote, uh, a, an article about the age of enlightenment in healthcare which I think is the truth about the future. And he's, he just, uh, I think he just uh, re uh, finished his tour with WebMD and he's going to start something in the near future. And I think it's going to be pretty exciting. I'm, I'm hoping it has something to do with what we're doing. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. All right. For everybody else, the links will be in the show notes here. If you're more interested in hearing about Dr. Bliss, if you want to learn about Q Lions, if you live in the, the Seattle area, if you're just interested in finding a direct primary clinic in your geographic area, uh, we'll put those links that you can discover more there. Uh, and until next time, everybody stay well. <laughs>